0: This is the Nations of Canada podcast, episode 93, What is to Befall Us? We left off last episode with one of the major turning points of the American Revolution. In the fall of 1777, John Burgoyne surrendered an army of almost 8,000 veteran soldiers to the American rebels. It was a great blow to British pretensions of superiority, and proved that the Patriots were far more than just a collection of untrained militiamen. Just as importantly, the Patriot victory convinced France that the rebellion might just succeed, Within months, the French joined the war, turning it into yet another transatlantic conflict. What I want to do in this episode is take the story from Saratoga through to the war's conclusion in 1783. But rather than track events from the grand perspective of London, Paris, or even the rebel capital at Philadelphia, we're going to take a much more localized approach. In the weeks before Burgoyne's defeat, a smaller but bloodier story had played out in the Mohawk Valley. The violence there would continue throughout the rest of the war, and would have an impact on the Canada that emerged in the aftermath of the revolution. So we'll follow the war from the Mohawk Valley and the surrounding Iroquois lands. Occasionally, the larger course of the war will infringe on our narrative, but hopefully our story will be more personal than national. As you might expect, we'll be spending most of our time with the cast of characters we met last episode. Indian agents like Daniel Klaus or John Butler, the loyalists commanded by John Johnson, but most of all, Joseph Brandt and his fellow Iroquois warriors. When we last saw those characters, they were part of a British expedition into the Mohawk Valley in the summer of 1777. After executing a devastating but costly ambush on a rebel militia at Orskany, the Allied force retreated back to Lake Ontario. The indigenous warriors, who made up the majority of the Allied army, had been demoralized by their losses, and frustrated by what they saw as poor British leadership. As they drifted off towards home, or split into independent war parties seeking their own revenge, the truncated British and Loyalist force withdrew to safety. That left the Patriots in control of the Mohawk Valley, though the rebels felt far from secure. Roughly half the regional militia had been killed at Orskani, including their general, Nicholas Herkimer. The remaining men returned to their homes, and were in no mood to fight another battle any time soon. The Mohawk Valley was only secured by the arrival of an army of regulars, led by noted war hero, Benedict Arnold. Arnold, who had experience occupying hostile territory in Canada, looked sourly on the many Loyalists of the Mohawk Valley. He ordered his troops to round up any families of known Loyalists not already in custody. Arnold saw wives in particular as potential spies, who could provide covert support for any future British attack. Some behave very rudely, he complained, and have proved very active to support and spirit up the opposite cause. Arnold took a similarly dim view of the Iroquois Confederacy, whose chiefs still hoped to maintain an official policy of neutrality. The warriors who had joined the British expedition were young and impetuous, they argued. They represented only themselves, not the Confederacy as a whole. Arnold was having none of this. The Oneida, who had fought and died beside the patriots, received his warmest compliments. But the General proclaimed that the other tribes of the Six Nations are villains, and I hope they will be treated as such. The result was five years of guerrilla warfare that would turn the Mohawk Valley and much of the Confederacy's traditional territory into a barren desert. In December 1777, the winter after the Battle of Orscany, the leaders of the Iroquois Nations, with the notable absence of the Oneida, gathered at Niagara to consult with John Butler, the British Indian agent who had set up a base there. In total, 3,000 warriors attended, from both the Confederacy and a collection of Western nations. Everyone recognized that the Confederacy was now, in effect, at war with the American rebels. The Winter Council hashed out the strategy that would determine the fighting in the interior for the remainder of the war. War parties, supplied by and sometimes joined by the British, would conduct raids along the frontier, from the Mohawk Valley to the Kentucky settlements on the Ohio River to the southwest. Although these raiding parties would primarily consist of indigenous warriors, Loyalists participated too. Which isn't surprising, considering that in addition to pillaging, these parties often liberated Loyalist families held captive by the rebels. In fact, the most notorious of the war bands, Joseph Brant's troop, had more white men than Indians. The Highland Scots attached to the Johnson family also proved to be skilled guerrilla fighters. Moving quickly over rough terrain, then disappearing after lightning raids, came naturally to the men of the Highlands. As soon as the weather turned in the spring of 1778, Brandt was the first one to rush into the frontier zone between the Great Lakes and the Hudson. Brandt had no formal position within the Iroquois Confederacy. His influence rested on his sister Molly and his personal connections with the British. So his band of raiders was more of a private affair than any kind of official Mohawk army. As we've seen, most of his men were loyalist settlers, though they enthusiastically adopted the tactics and war paint of Iroquois warriors and Brant's indigenous followers came from multiple Iroquois nations. They were drawn to him through links of kinship rather than nationality. Many were, like him, Mohawk, but there were also some Cayuga, among whom his mother now lived, and even Loyalist Oneida, a rare group in an increasingly polarized confederacy. Officially, the purpose of Brant's spring expedition was to lay the groundwork for a larger incursion to be led by John Butler later in the year. But Brant also had more personal motivations. He rushed to his native Mohawk territory, the first stop for any rebel army moving in from the east, and collected his family and friends, who remained in the area. Their homes were no longer safe, and he urged them to move deeper into the interior, or even head to the safety of the British base at Niagara. Once that was accomplished, Brandt set up a base for his party at Okaga, about 100 kilometers south of Fort Stanwix. From there, he raided American settlements, partly to destabilize and terrorize the frontier, but also to gather supplies. On the 30th of May, Brant's men hit Cobbleskill, just 50 kilometers west of Albany. They burned the entire settlement to the ground and drove its cattle back towards Ocaga. When a local militia scrambled to track them down, it was wiped out in an ambush. Stories of mutilated bodies soon reached other frontier settlements, spreading panic all through the region. But while the settlers along the Mohawk Valley braced for violence, the next blow actually came further west, in the Wyoming Valley, between modern-day Buffalo and Rochester. The land there had only recently been settled, the product of a land deal that most of the Iroquois Confederacy disputed, especially the Seneca, who claimed the settlers were encroaching on their land. As you may recall, the Seneca had suffered more than any other Iroquois nation at the Battle of Orscany, and their warriors demanded revenge for the lives that had been lost. The Wyoming settlers hadn't been involved in that battle, but they were a convenient way for the Seneca to settle an old grievance at the same time they avenged the deaths at Orscany. At the beginning of July, about 500 Iroquois warriors and a handful of British rangers led by John Butler swept into the valley. The settlers, far from any friendly support, were overwhelmed. Butler estimated that he and his allies destroyed more than a 100 dwellings and secured more than a 1,000 head of cattle. Butler's report was far more tight-lipped when it came to the human cost of the campaign. He acknowledged that the Seneca took 227 scalps and just five prisoners. And even then, Butler admitted that it was only with the greatest difficulty that I could save the lives of those few. Somewhat implausibly, he claimed that all of those they had killed were armed militiamen. Not a single civilian had been harmed. A less comforting narrative soon contradicted Butler's account, once refugees started arriving on the Hudson River. Haggard and traumatized families described the most horrid scenes of savage barbarity. Men like Butler were caught in a bind. The best tools they had to fight the rebels were indigenous warriors. But those warriors had their own methods and motivations, which didn't always align with official British policy. Butler's attempt to distance himself from wartime atrocities was awkward and, in the end, not very successful. Meanwhile, Brant continued his campaign in the East. While Butler and the Seneca were ravaging the Wyoming settlements in July, Brant's men destroyed Andrewstown and Springfield. In fact, he was so successful in wiping them off the map that I don't actually know where Andrewstown was. Springfield lay between Brant's base at Ocauga and the Mohawk Valley, so presumably Andrew's town was nearby. Throughout August, the entire New York frontier was in a panic. Militias mobilized not even the rumor of Brant's approach, but they were merely chasing shadows. The next blow came in September, when Brant returned to the Mohawk Valley. On the 17th, his men burned German flats, the birthplace of the late Nicholas Herkimer, and as the name suggests, home to many other German settlers. It was his greatest success yet, and likely a matter of personal satisfaction, a kind of homecoming for Brant. Soon after, Brant was recalled back to Niagara. Butler was intent on mounting one last large-scale expedition before winter, and he wanted Brant's crack troop to take part. Butler himself was 50 years old and suffering from ill health, so he passed command of the expedition to his 26-year-old son, Walter Butler. The younger Butler had grown up in the Mohawk Valley, watching his father conduct indigenous diplomacy but he was untested in battle and had never held a command position in an allied operation. Walter Butler and Joseph Brandt created an odd kind of partnership. Butler, like his father, was an officer in the British Indian Department. He personally commanded a handful of British Rangers, but the majority of the 300 men he brought with him were indigenous warriors, mostly Iroquois. Brandt, on the other hand, led a volunteer force that was somewhat ambiguously tied to the British state. He also had 300 men, though in his case the majority were white loyalists. Together, the combined force consisted of around 600 men, 200 European, and 400 indigenous. Their target was Cherry Valley, a community of settlers in the same area Brant had been raiding that summer. On the 10th of November, the Allied force marched within sight of the village. After Brant's raids earlier in the year, the Americans had thrown up a palisaded fort, garrisoned by 300 soldiers of the Continental Army, regulars from Massachusetts. However, the attackers had the element of surprise. The settlers didn't expect a raid so late in the season, and Iroquois warriors had successfully wiped out the scouting parties that would have otherwise warned of their approach. In fact, the surprise was so total that when the attack came the next day, the 11th of November, most of the rebel soldiers were caught outside of the fort. Only a handful managed to scramble behind its walls, and those who did were leaderless. The garrison commander, Ichabod Alden, was one of the first men killed, and several of his senior officers were captured. For those of you who like to keep track of these things, Ichabod Alden came from the same Alden family as John Alden, the Boston merchant who played a large role in Acadian politics in the 1690s. The outcome of the attack on Cherry Valley was determined in the opening minutes of the battle. The entirety of the defending garrison was either killed, captured, or retreated into the fort, where they would play no role in subsequent events. But in terms of future impact, how the Allied force carried out its victory would be just as important. Butler focused his energies on the fort, Though without siege instruments, he was unable to make any headway. More importantly, Butler was either unwilling or unable to exert any influence on his Iroquois allies. While he sat outside the fort, the warriors methodically destroyed the settlement. The Seneca who had come with Butler were especially violent, still looking to avenge their losses at Orskany. Brant tried to restrain them. He knew several of the families in Cherry Valley to be loyalists. In fact, some of them had provided Brant with valuable intelligence before the raid. But once the destruction of the village began, it was impossible to stop. All 13 members of the Wells family, personal friends of Brandt and the ones who had helped the attackers, were killed. One of the reasons they had been able to provide such useful intelligence was that several of the soldiers in the garrison were staying in their home. That, however, proved to be their undoing, as Seneca warriors assumed that their hospitality made them ardent patriots. In the end, every structure aside from the fort was destroyed. 14 soldiers and more than 30 civilians were killed. While the raiders trudged home, Walter Butler worked on a long report, justifying his role in the massacre. I have much to lament, he wrote, that notwithstanding my utmost precaution and endeavors to save the women and children, I could not prevent some of them from falling unhappy victims to the fury of the savages. Equal parts ashamed and self-serving, Butler's report blamed the poor discipline and uncontrollable nature of the indigenous warriors. For his part, Joseph Brandt blamed Butler for his lack of leadership. But although the Mohawk war leader had tried to rein in the warriors, he wasn't above using the massacre to his advantage. On their way back to the British lines, Brandt sent messengers to the remaining settlements in the area. If any loyalists were harmed over the winter, they warned patriot civilians, they would be worse dealt with than your neighbors the Cherry Valley people was. The winter of 1778-1779 was a bitter one on both sides of the frontier. Despite the great patriot victory at Saratoga, the New York frontier seemed as vulnerable as ever. Those whose homes hadn't been destroyed feared that they would be next. Many contemplated a retreat to Schenectady, the westernmost outpost that the Continental Army seemed capable of defending. Meanwhile at Niagara, the British faced their own challenges. Ever since 1775, waves of Iroquois and Loyalist refugees had been flooding towards the British base there. This was a real problem for Frederick Haldimand, the overall British commander in Canada. Guy Carleton, the old governor, returned to England after the Saratoga campaign. Carleton had been upset that London had given command of the Grand Invasion to Burgoyne, his deputy, a position that seemed all too justified after Burgoyne bungled the campaign. Carleton, therefore, avoided any taint of failure. He would spend the next couple of years rising to the highest levels of imperial government, but we haven't seen the last of him in our Canadian story. But back to Carleton's successor at Quebec, Frederick Haldimand. Haldimand was a Swiss-born soldier who had fought with the Prussians and the Dutch before joining the British in the Seven Years' War. He now took over British Canada, a colony in a precarious position. Burgoyne's surrender at Saratoga left Canada exposed, and Haldimand had reason to suspect that the Mission Indians on the St. Lawrence were somewhat less than loyal. As we saw at the outset of the war, there was a vocal pro-patriot minority within Ganawaga. Those voices had been marginalized once the rebels were thrown out of Montreal, but in 1778, an American alliance once again seemed plausible. The reason for the change was the entrance of France into the war. Through a mixture of old tales and the memories of elders, the Mission Indians looked back on the French era with nostalgia. Only a handful of Ganawagans were willing to fight for the Americans, but more might be willing to take up arms to restore Anantioh. In the fall of 1778, while Seneca warriors were burning down Cherry Valley, Gonawaga delegations traveled to Boston and Philadelphia to see if the rumors were true. Were the French really back? By a happy coincidence, the party visited Boston at the same time as French naval officer Louis-Antoine de Bougainville. You might remember Bougainville popping up in our episode on the Pacific. He was exploring the South Pacific for France at the same time James Cook was doing that job for the British. But you might also remember him as Montcalm's deputy in Canada during the Seven Years' War. More importantly, that's how the Ganawaga delegates remembered him. During his time on the St. Lawrence, Bougainville had been formally adopted by the Mohawks of Ganawaga, So he was the perfect man to confirm the rumors for his adoptive brothers. The French were back, and who knew what would be possible in the aftermath of the war? Perhaps 20 years of British rule on the St. Lawrence could be reversed and the old French system reinstated. But while Haldeman feared an American invasion that might be supported by indigenous warriors on the St. Lawrence, the most immediate problem he faced that winter was at Niagara. Despite all the insecurity on the St. Lawrence, he had to find a way to support the community of indigenous and loyalist refugees, not to mention the British posts further afield at Detroit and Michilimackinac, upon which the fur trade alliances depended. Advising Haldeman on this predicament was Joseph Brandt, who traveled downriver to Quebec that winter to meet with the new governor. Although Brant still held little formal influence within the Iroquois Confederacy, British officials like Haldimand increasingly saw him as a valuable conduit to the indigenous world. The governor eagerly confirmed Carleton's earlier promises to compensate the Iroquois for any losses they suffered during the war. Brant returned to Niagara in January 1779, confident that British military power would see the Iroquois through this trying time. At a series of councils held at Niagara before the spring campaigning season, Brant joined with John Butler urging the Iroquois to continue their raiding in the coming year. Unfortunately for them, the Americans were working on their own plans that winter. The rebels were dealing with their own refugee problem. Schenectady was full of settlers who had fled their homes on the frontier, or who no longer had homes at all thanks to persistent raids. And while there was similar suffering all across the colonies, American leadership had reason to be especially concerned about the New York frontier. The Continental Army needed the farms in the Mohawk Valley to produce grain to feed its men. General Washington himself made the security of the region a priority. Washington determined that defense wasn't a viable option. Iroquois warriors struck without warning, and trying to hunt them down after their raids was dangerous, and too little too late, anyway. As Washington explained, to defend an extensive frontier against the incursions of Indians and bandits under Butler and Brant is next to impossible. The only answer was to go on the offensive. In order to keep the Mohawk Valley safe, they would have to take the fight to the heart of the Iroquois Confederacy. Washington imagined a campaign modeled on the old French punitive expeditions of the 17th century. By destroying the villages of the Confederacy, the Americans could ensure that Mohawk and Seneca warriors ran to their British protectors, rather than raid the farms of the Mohawk Valley. It would take time to organize the kind of expedition Washington had in mind, but in April 1779, the Iroquois got an early taste of what the year would bring. Before Joseph Brandt or any of his counterparts could restart the guerrilla war, a large American raiding party hit Onondaga country. Several villages were destroyed, and a wave of Onondaga refugees flooded into Niagara, joining the Mohawk, who had been there for the past three years. Brandt responded by hitting new targets even further south than before, in the foothills of the Catskills, just 75 kilometers from Manhattan. The Mohawk war leader's reputation grew, especially after his men ambushed a force of 120 militiamen, chasing them down after a raid killing a third of them. When Washington got the news, he put a bounty on Brant's head. The Mohawk leader had come to symbolize the deal with the devil the British had made with their barbaric allies. But Brant's raids, no matter how successful, counted for little against what was coming. In fact, the wheels had been set in motion while Brant was still in the Catskills. In June, an army of more than 4,000 men, led by General John Sullivan, set out from Easton in Pennsylvania. His mission was to approach the Iroquois Confederacy from the south destroying any villages he encountered along the way. Smaller detachments converged from the Mohawk Valley to the east, and from Fort Pitt, modern-day Pittsburgh, from the southwest. Against such overwhelming numbers, the Iroquois had no hope of resistance. Following the same strategy their ancestors had against the French, they abandoned their villages and waited for the invaders to return home. But this was a comprehensive campaign of destruction. Washington's orders to Sullivan were explicit. He demanded that, the country may not be merely overrun but destroyed while the army was on the march Washington reiterated the point he urged Sullivan to make the destruction of their settlements so final and complete as to put it out of their power to derive the smallest succor from them in case they should attempt to return this season for most of July Sullivan's army sat at the edge of Iroquois territory awaiting fresh supplies in the Wyoming valley that Seneca warriors had ravaged earlier in the war. Camping in what one of the soldiers called the Place of the Skulls motivated the men to exact revenge on the perpetrators of the raids. In August, the destruction began in earnest. Sullivan's men burned the abandoned villages they came across, while Brant's war party shadowed their movements. The invaders outnumbered him ten to one, so engaging the enemy was impossible. But Brant hoped to gain intelligence that might be useful once reinforcements arrived. John Butler in Niagara answered the call, bringing the Allied war band up to 600. But the larger British war machine was slow to respond to the crisis. Governor Haldimand worried about an invasion on Canada itself and was unwilling to part with troops. Meanwhile, the Regiment of New York Loyalists, commanded by John Johnson, was based in Montreal. It would take them weeks to get to Niagara, never mind Iroquois country. Butler and Brant agreed that they didn't have the manpower to stop Sullivan's punitive campaign. Their best bet was to fall back on Niagara and continue their guerrilla war once the Americans marched home. But that plan didn't satisfy the Seneca and the other Iroquois nations who faced the destruction of their homes. They demanded that Butler and Brant help them make a stand. Realizing that a battle was inevitable, Brant declared that at least in its aftermath, we shall begin to know what is to befall us, the people of the Longhouse. His words had a double meaning. They would be fighting for their land, but they would also be fighting to keep the Confederacy unified. If the individual nations of the Confederacy looked to their own interests, each of them would, one by one, come to terms with the Americans. That way, Brandt was certain, led to the end of the Iroquois people. Although he had little time at the moment to sketch out any grand political ideas, a project was building in his mind. The only real security the indigenous peoples of North America had lay in unity. As I say, though, in the immediate term, Brandt's focus was battle, not politics. By late August, the Allied force had come up with a plan. They set an ambush on the approaches to the villages of the Cayuga, near modern-day Elmira, just north of the New York-Pennsylvania border. Having got word that the Mohawk Valley wing of the invasion had just linked up with Sullivan, they were aware that they faced some 5,000 men. Butler commanded 250 rangers, and the collection of indigenous warbands amounted to around 1,000 warriors. In addition to the American superiority in numbers, Sullivan was aware of the danger and moved cautiously. His men were regulars, hardened by training and three years of war by this point. As the Americans methodically picked their way through the countryside, the ambushers waited. In fact, they waited three whole days, the tension and anxiety mounting. By the time the Americans finally appeared, on the 29th of August, the Allied rangers and warriors were exhausted, both physically and mentally. Even worse, Sullivan's men sniffed out the ambush. Advanced scouts detected the carefully disguised natural cover the Allies had constructed. When American gunners unloaded their artillery on the hidden warriors, panic ensued. Many fled. Ambushing a larger enemy was one thing, but fighting them in open battle went against the basic principles of indigenous warfare. Butler and Brandt held together a hard core of rangers, loyalists, and warriors, and made a desperate bid to avoid destruction. After a ten-mile fighting retreat, they were finally safe and collapsed from exhaustion. But although they had managed to escape, the defeat had devastating consequences. The entire Iroquois Confederacy lay undefended, and Butler had rushed south with every warm body Niagara had available. The anchor of the British position in the Great Lakes lay exposed. With no other option, Brandt continued to shadow Sullivan's army as it cut a swath through Seneca territory. Hopefully he could pick off stragglers and gather intelligence from captives. Finally, in the second week of September, the beleaguered allies got good news. Brant's men successfully ambushed an American scouting party, and the interrogation of a captive officer revealed that Sullivan's army was near the end of its supplies. It would advance no further than the Genesee River, a hundred kilometers short of Niagara. Butler, who recorded the incident, was silent on how exactly Brant extracted the information. But just two hours after the ambush, Sullivan's main army came across two mutilated corpses, clearly American soldiers who had been tortured. Brant's reputation as a barbarous savage only grew. But the intelligence was correct. Sullivan was withdrawing from Iroquois territory. Though on his way home, he destroyed yet more villages, these ones belonging to the Cayuga and Mohawk. The departure of the Americans brought little relief, though. Only the Oneida had been spared. Every other nation of the Confederacy lost virtually all their homes and crops. Just as Washington had demanded, it would be impossible for the Iroquois to feed themselves that winter. Rather than returning to their homes to rebuild, they headed for the safety of Niagara. The Mohawk, who had been there from the start of the war and had been joined by the Onondaga that spring, now welcomed Cayuga and Seneca refugees. It's likely that 5,000 Iroquois men, women, and children camped outside the British fort. Governor Haldimand, who had worried about feeding Niagara the previous winter, now faced an even greater challenge. For generations after, the Iroquois would remember the winter of 1779-1780 as a time of starvation and suffering. Understandably, most refugees focused on surviving. But the future of Iroquois society itself seemed in doubt. Little Abraham, one of the Iroquois who arrived that winter, lamented to his friends and neighbors that there is now no longhouse where you and I can safely tell each other our fears. Amid the fatalism and resignation of the Iroquois refugee community, Joseph Brandt saw an opportunity both for himself and his people. Brandt himself didn't hold any formal position of leadership in the Mohawk world. He was making a name for himself as a war leader, and his close relationship with the British ensured a degree of informal influence, but he fell outside of the great matriarchal families that dominated Iroquois politics. And yet, Brant was confident that he had a role to play in rebuilding the Iroquois longhouse that stood on the brink of collapse. That winter in Niagara, Brant formed an alliance with one of the leading Mohawk families. He married Catherine, the 20-year-old daughter of the old Irish trader George Crogan and the matriarch of the Turtle Clan, the most senior in the Mohawk nation. As matriarch, a title Catherine inherited from her late mother, she selected the civil chief of the clan, who held the name-slash-office of Tikar Hogan, the most powerful figure in Mohawk politics. In early 1780, the current Tikar Hogan was Catherine's uncle, Johannes Tikar Hogan. But he soon died, leaving Catherine to select her half-brother Henry as the next Tikar Hogan. The marriage with Catherine brought Joseph Brandt into this partnership, that was fast rising to prominence within the Mohawk world. For the next 25 years, Joseph, Catherine, and Henry would form a tight coalition. Although Brandt was often the most visible of the three, especially to European audiences, the program they developed for the post-war Iroquois world was a group effort. Of course, that post-war world couldn't be created until the war was over, so we have a bit of narrative to run through first. As a sign of Brandt's growing influence, he officially entered the service of the British Indian Department as an officer, the only non-European to hold that position. In that capacity, he led the main raiding party out of Niagara once the winter of 1780 ended. It was the first time Brandt had commanded anyone other than his private army of kin and loyalist volunteers. The year's fighting destroyed what little security or prosperity remained in the region. Brandt focused his energies on the Oneida, the one nation that had escaped the ravages of the American invasion the year before. Although the Oneida had provided useful services to the Americans, the nation found that it was a low priority for the rebel government. Left to fend for themselves, the Oneida fled in the face of Brant's raiders. Faith in the Americans was so low that many walked to Niagara and begged for relief from the British there. Meanwhile, John Johnson and his regiment of New York Loyalists struck at the Mohawk Valley, looking to liberate the remaining Loyalists held captive there. Washington's goal of securing the frontier by wiping out the Iroquois Confederacy had failed. So long as warriors and Loyalists could operate from bases in Canada, the frontier remained contested. The largest raiding campaign came at the end of the summer, in September. Governor Haldeman wanted to make sure that every bushel of grain in the Mohawk Valley was destroyed before it could get to Washington's troops. In this, Brant and his colleagues were largely successful. They pillaged all down the valley, nearly to the walls of Schenectady. In fact, the Mohawk Valley and the old Confederacy lands were so denuded that there was little raiding to be done the following year. There was simply nothing left to pillage. Even Fort Stanwix had been abandoned. Once Brandt chased the Oneida off their nearby land, the fort no longer served any purpose. In search of new targets, Brandt and his raiders moved west to Detroit. The Western Theater was just one of several in the Revolutionary War that we've been ignoring in this podcast so far. But as it's entering our story now, I'll try to give a brief overview of events. In the West, both the British and the Americans were outsiders. The majority of the population belonged to the traditional Western nations of the old Péronaux, along with French farmers and fur traders around Detroit and the Illinois settlements. British and American commanders struggled to win and maintain the loyalties of Western warriors and French militias, who fought or didn't for their own reasons. Neither side had made much progress in the war so far. The British failed to make much of an impression outside Detroit. Meanwhile, the Americans were led by George Rogers Clark, a Virginian who had spent the years before the war aggressively pushing the settlement frontier into the interior. At the outset of the Revolutionary War, Clark commanded the Kentucky Militia, composed of recently arrived settlers along the Ohio River. He and his men scored some victories, eradicating British influence in the French settlements in the old Illinois country. But pressing on to the British base at Detroit proved problematic. Clark found it difficult to build the indigenous alliances necessary to fight in the Pétanon, in large part because he and the Kentucky settlers he led had a notorious reputation among the Western nations. American settlement along the Ohio was resented, and had only been achieved through the spilling of indigenous blood. When Joseph Brant arrived in the area in the spring of 1781, the stalemate had been in place for almost two years. The arrival of Iroquois warriors didn't exactly end the deadlock. Brant could raid, but had little ability to conquer. But the Mohawk warrior did score some notable victories, ambushing Clark's main force as it advanced north. Soon after, Brant executed a few lightning raids on the Kentucky settlers, a satisfying bit of revenge for the Western nations. Brant's work won him begrudging praise from Western chiefs, who traditionally weren't in the habit of speaking kindly of Iroquois warriors. Which was the real significance of Brant's western trip. His post-war vision that I mentioned earlier revolved around a grand unification of North America's indigenous peoples. Brant still trusted the British crown, but he wasn't so naive as to put his whole faith in the Europeans. The indigenous world was on the brink of destruction, and the only way to preserve their nations was through solidarity. In a sense, Brandt imagined a rebirth of the Iroquois buffer state between France and England that had ensured peace and security in the first half of the 18th century. Only this time, the Iroquois alone wouldn't have the ability to balance the two European powers, in this case, Britain and America. Brandt hoped for a much broader coalition that included the Western nations. The idea hadn't crystallized yet, but the time would soon come when the indigenous peoples would have to speak with one voice, or risk being drowned out by the Europeans. In fact, that time was coming sooner than Brant realized. As he traveled back to Niagara in the spring of 1782, ominous rumors were circulating all around him. The previous fall, the British had suffered a decisive defeat in Virginia, and the government in London had already decided to open peace talks with the rebels. Isolated Canada was usually the last place to receive news, which often came in distorted drips and drabs. But this time, the rumors were true. On the 19th of October, 1781, General Charles Cornwallis had surrendered his army to the Americans at Yorktown in Virginia. The post-war settlement was already being hashed out. This was alarming news for both the Iroquois and the New York loyalists. As far as they were concerned, the war was far from over. Both groups had been exiled from their homes, but the enemy lived in fear of their guerrilla campaigns. Would any peace recognize the conditions on the ground in the Great Lakes region? or, as had happened many times before, would diplomats a world away betray everything they had worked for? Brant suddenly felt helpless. Guy Carleton, who was returning to North American politics to oversee the end of the war, canceled the raiding campaigns for 1782. As a show of good faith, he had promised the Americans a pause in offensive operations. Meanwhile, Brant's allies in the Indian department were withdrawing from the war as well. Guy Johnson was removed from his position as superintendent due to a corruption scandal within the Montreal Company that supplied Britain's indigenous allies with gifts. He was replaced by his cousin John Johnson, who had never had much interest in the Iroquois world. This Johnson was more concerned about his position in post-war Canada, now that it looked like he might never get back to his estates in the Mohawk Valley. Even John Butler, the most active of the Indian agents, was fading from the scene. He was once again debilitated by ill health and depression. His son Walter had been killed during the fighting in 1781. And Brandt wasn't the only one dissatisfied with the peace talks. The nations that had allied themselves with the British had never been under any illusions about European fidelity. The crown had just been the lesser of two evils compared to the land-hungry American patriots. It didn't require a great leap of imagination to foresee British politicians abandoning their allies. The governor at Quebec, Frederick Haldimand, saw the danger more clearly than others. He had been there for Pontiac's war almost 20 years earlier which had erupted when the Anglo-French peace in Europe ignored the indigenous nations involved in the fighting. In fact, as Haldeman was well aware, the current war with the American colonists was partly a result of that conflict. The British government's fear of another Indian war drove many of the settlement policies that so enraged the American colonists. In a series of letters, Haldeman warned anyone who would listen against making a similar mistake this time. He informed Carleton, managing peace talks from New York, that Indian leaders were following events closely. They are alarmed, he wrote, at the appearance of an accommodation, so far short of what our language from the beginning has taught them to expect. Unless Carleton took their concerns into account, any peace with the Americans would only open a new war with the Indians. Meanwhile, Haldeman tried to convince his superiors in London that another Indian war would be disastrous for British possessions in North America. Whatever territory Carleton managed to salvage would be quickly overrun by the warriors the peace betrayed. Canada's future was in the hands of the King's indigenous allies, or, as Haldeman put it, an unremitting attention to a very nice management of that people is inseparable from the safety of this province. Haldeman begged London for assurances he could pass on to men like Brandt, tangible guarantees that the British wouldn't abandon the territories of their allies in the peace. This was a particular concern of the Iroquois, most of whom were living as refugees on the Niagara Peninsula. They hoped to one day return home and expected that their British allies would help them to do so but the British government had bigger concerns than maintaining its relationship with uncivilized allies of convenience. Haldeman's letters went unanswered. In the absence of any directives from London, Haldeman was forced to repeat the same old vague promises. Brandt and other indigenous leaders were far from reassured. From this perspective, the preliminary peace terms agreed to in November 1782 were a disaster. Britain recognized the independence of the United States of America and set the Great Lakes as the border between the two nations. This placed the entirety of the Iroquois Confederacy, and much of the old Pérano of the West, within the United States. Where that left Britain's indigenous allies was unclear. The initial draft of the treaty made no reference to them. Once again, it took months for the news to reach Canada, which was especially isolated from the outside world during the winter. When Haldeman got word of the peace terms in April 1783, he was shocked. With no absolute necessity, he fumed, we have humbled ourselves so much as to accept such humiliating boundaries. But a more immediate problem for the governor was how the Indians would respond. At first, he tried to suppress the news, hoping that subsequent reports might clarify matters, but pretty soon everyone knew. Aaron Hill, a leading Mohawk chief, refused to believe that our king could pretend to cede to Americans what was not his own to give. Joseph Brant, likely the indigenous leader with the most trust in the British government, simply said, England has sold the Indians to Congress. But in the immediate term anyway, Haldeman's fears of another Pontiac didn't come to pass. Partly because 1783 was not 1763. The Western nations, and especially the Iroquois, were more dependent on the British than they had been in Pontiac's day. Also, although the British ignored their allies at the negotiating table, subsequent British policy raised hopes that old friendships wouldn't be cast aside that easily. Although key fortifications at Detroit, Michilimackinac, and Oswego fell on the US side of the Great Lakes, their British garrisons showed no sign of pulling out. In fact, British troops would remain there for several years after the peace, fueling hope among the nations of the frontier that the British had not yet abandoned them. Officially, the British occupation of the border posts was a kind of insurance to make sure the Americans followed through on some of their treaty obligations. More on that soon. But British policymakers were also influenced by Haldeman's warnings that the withdrawal of British troops would spark an Indian War. Deprived of British protection, the Iroquois and Western nations would very likely take up arms, throwing the whole region into chaos. British military and diplomatic influence, in territory it had nominally surrendered to the Americans, would remain a sticking point between the two nations, and a major theme in our story for decades to come. So in a sense, the end of the Revolutionary War won't be a clean break in the narrative. What happened south of the border remained very much a part of Canada's story. But the peace did open up new avenues that we'll be pursuing. One of these avenues came out of a meeting between Joseph Brandt and Governor Haldeman in Montreal, shortly after news of the treaty broke. In a formal audience, Brandt delivered a lengthy history of the Anglo-Iroquois relationship, detailing the loyalty his people had shown over the generations. He concluded, with a demand for a straight answer on the forthcoming treaty, I am now sent on behalf of all the king's Indian allies to receive a decisive answer from you and to know whether they are included in this treaty with the Americans as faithful allies should be. In particular, Brandt wanted to know the fate of the lands of the Iroquois Confederacy. Would the Iroquois people be permanently separated from the bones of our forefathers? Haldimand had still not received any instructions from London on the fate of the Indians and so was forced to give Brandt the same old bland assurances of British fidelity. But he seized on the one opening Brandt had given him during his history lesson of all the promises the British had made, Brant mentioned a pledge Guy Carlton had delivered earlier in the war. The old governor had promised that the British crown would compensate its allies for any losses suffered in the war. Since the Iroquois seemed in danger of losing their homeland, you could argue that the British owed the people of the Confederacy a new homeland. Although Brant refused to give up on reclaiming lands south of the Great Lakes, with or without British help, he was open to the idea of new lands north of the border which will turn out to be the dominant theme in our next run of episodes. Just like in the Franco-Iroquois Wars of the 17th century, peace brought with it massive movements of population. Brant and the Iroquois weren't the only ones whose homes were on the wrong side of the border. The peace treaty had turned loyalists like John Johnson into exiles as well. Next time, we'll take our story beyond the world of the Mohawk Valley and meet the thousands of British-American colonists who had just lost a civil war. Forced into exile, many sought out new homes in the North. Music by Jason Shaw, AudioNautics.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky?